When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. We invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories. Their nuanced conversations. And forward thinking. And not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing. But not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Hello, this is Seth, and I'm coming along today with Omar Hi, to talk with the one and the only Michelle Collins. Hello. How are you doing, Michelle? I'm good. How are you? Oh. <laughs> I got to meet Michelle through another group called Too Many Podcasters, <laughs> which is something that... Isn't that fade to gray? Isn't that what... <laughs> no, Too many podcasters. This, this is actually... Well... That's how we started. <laughs> It is how we started. Nine people on a podcast was quite the ordeal. But this group of people, we're, we're getting together and uh, talking about faith issues and how that impacts us. And it's been a really, um, it's been an honor to be a part of that group. And, and through that, I got to meet Michelle, um, who I believe is working um, on her psych D, is that correct? My psych D, yes. A clinical doctorate in psychology. Um, which you call of course that is side D. You're working on side D. Side D. Oh, okay. <laughs> Seth's always working on some side D. <laughs> Omar. <laughs> yeah, you asked me to be here, Seth. Just remember that. <laughs> I did. I did ask you to be here, and I can always count on a gay joke. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be a fun morning. <laughs> yes, that is our goal here. Um. So I am curious because as a counselor myself, well, I guess I can't call myself a counselor. I'm a, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, okay. but um, as a mental health professional in the field, um, you know, there was lots of things that propelled me um, into that direction. Mm. And so I'm curious, what led you into the clinical field? Uh, that's actually going to be a very weird um, segue. Uh, my husband still kind of trying to figure that out too. As I had mentioned to you previously, I have an accounting background. I'm an accountant. Um, I own my own business. Um, mm -hmm. I have a master's degree in business administration. Um, my business, I work with uh, business owners and I'm kind of a outsourced controller or CFO kind of presence within most businesses. And one of the things that kept striking me was that so many of them got in their own way mentally to being successful. And so I thought there's, there's got to be some value to having a psychological background in dealing with business owners. Um, and so that was my primary, you know, juncture into, into uh, the psychology education. And I do find that it is very, very helpful. Um, doesn't mean they still listen to me, but um, I understand their little foibles now a whole lot better. Um, but along the way, of course, um, the whole religious deconstruction stuff started as well. And, and so that has become very much a focus of that uh, educational pursuit as well. So uh, it, it's useful across the board. <laughs> That's interesting, Michelle. Um, so you, the question was about your education mm -hmm. and yeah, somehow that, you know, spilled into your deconstruction. I want to know how, how those two <laughs> intersected. You can't, you, know, you kind of like just glazed over that, like kind of break that down. Like how did, um, first of all, I guess you'd have to tell us like, what was the catalyst to your deconstruction? And how did that inter intersect in your um, education? Well, I mean, I grew up in the church. I grew up being very, um, very pious, you know, young lady. Uh, my grandmother was very strict. Uh, I was raised Pentecostal. So, of course, you know, the only time that you were allowed to really act out was in church. And that was because it was very, 
structured around speaking in tongues and dancing in the spirit and the whole deal and everything. And I grew up that way. Um, I loved it and very charismatic. Yeah. And, um, as I got older, of course, I kind of stepped away from the church for all. I was in the military for a while and I stepped away from the church for a bit, met my husband there. But then when I had kids, I of course felt the pull back to that religious roots. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I can't pinpoint a specific thing that started the actual deconstruction. And as a matter of fact, I had no idea that anything like what that was called. I had no idea. I just knew I had some questions going through my head and I was struggling with them. Um, I didn't know where they came from. And, and it's funny because as I've studied now, I, I realize that most people can't tell you why deconstruction starts. And as a matter of fact, um, it actually is just something that kind of bubbles up in people. Um, and, and now I've come to understand that it's when you're psychologically ready. And, and so you, I, I reached a point where these questions began. I actually went to my pastor at the time and started asking some of these questions, which by the way, will get you in a lot of trouble. I was going to say, um, did that go okay? No, or did that backfire? That backfired. It, it's back. It's backfired yeah. for me before. Yeah. My pastor uh, was actually my husband and I's best friend for about 13 years. Um, oh, wow. And when I started asking the questions, um, he got very uncomfortable. Um, he actually told me at the time, I, I understand you have these questions. That's great. But I think that maybe we need to put those questions on a shelf until you're ready to confront them. And I said, well, I am ready to confront them. That's why I'm asking them. <laughs> and um, basically that whole conversation kind of got swept under the rug. But after that, the way he treated me began to change. Um, so the deconstruction had, pre had started previous to me leaving church. Uh, but the catalyst for really pushing it into the forefront was being asked to leave church. Um, yeah. Or being told I was leaving. However we want to describe it. I still say I got kicked out. Mm, yeah. That's horrible. How involved were you in your church? Cause I think for a lot of people who experience deconstruction, um, from what I've learned is like it happens a lot faster, the more you're heavily involved you are in church leadership. Yeah. Kind of like the whole wizard of Oz thing. You know, once you get to the wizard and see behind the curtain, yep. it's it really hard to reconcile everything else you've believed to mm -hmm. be true. Um, well, basically I did pretty much everything you could do in the church. Um, I was preaching at that time. Um, I was teaching, I ran a discipleship program. Uh, I was a worship leader. Uh, my husband and I were a prayer team, um, on Sunday mornings. My husband was on the board of the church. We taught in the nursery and in children's ministry. Um, pretty much anything. Yeah, it sounds like you pretty much ran or were in a position in every single position within the church. It sounds like at from, one point or from another, preaching yeah. to yeah, to serving. At, wow. Yeah, at one point or another, and I was raised that way. I was raised that you you got involved, you you helped, you did whatever needed to be done, and stacking some chairs too. That's always oh my god, more chairs than you can imagine. <laughs> and I I vividly remember my husband vacuuming the church every Sunday morning. I mean, everything that you could do was done. So. You know, that's that old stereotype, and I don't know if it's statistically accurate or not, but the 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Well, we were in that 20%, so. Which is why I find it interesting, because you, your meeting with that pastor wasn't necessarily anything bad. You were just no, asking not at that some point. basic, yeah. <laughs> right, you were just asking some basic questions, which sounds like, now, makes me think that he then was insecure about it because he couldn't answer them. So his way of handling <laughs> that was to push you away. Uh, it's just interesting though, given the fact that you were so involved, mm -hmm. you know, normally that core group of people stays together because it's yeah. what the church needs to survive. Well, yeah. So why would they, why, you know, why would he start to push you out? Um, I'm not sure. I honestly, I mean, we have the same kind of personality. That's why we were very good friends. Um, we understood one another. We came from the same kind of background, basically. And um, I, I, I know that I'm a control freak, so I'm imagining that he liked being in control as well. So anytime somebody steps outside of your control, so to speak, I think that it's it's a little jarring at, the, at best and maybe very confrontational at worst. Um, I certainly didn't do it to be confrontational. I honestly was trying to answer some questions. And uh, it just, it wasn't well received. I, I mean, I, literally the conversation that I had with him was about a verse in the Bible and I was trying to understand mm. it. Um, and the verse was, um, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I was like, so here's my question. 
how do I ever unbecome something that I didn't do anything to become? How, and, Ooh. and so that, that was because I, I was raised to believe like you could mess up and lose your salvation. And like, so then all of a sudden I'm confronted with this idea. So when I asked the initial response I got was, well, there's still sin. And I'm like, but that's not what I ask. And so right. it just devolved from there. And that's what he said. Well, then we should put that on a shelf until, and I, I even told him, I said, if you don't know the answer, that's okay. I don't know the answer. Um, and he's like, well, I just don't think this is a discussion we should have. And I said, okay, fine. And, and I did, I wasn't angry. I went and I said, fine. I started listening to podcasts and other sermons and I'm like, I'm going to go find the answers to these questions, which of course is a rabbit trail of <laughs> more questions. Right. That just opened the door. <laughs> exactly. Right? That was almost like, it was almost by, by starting to search out other podcasts and uh, mm -hmm. books and things of that nature, you're just going to get more and more questions. Yeah. yeah, it becomes, it becomes a, a, you know, that snowball rolling down the hill, it just gets bigger. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Unfortunately, you see that a lot with uh, church leadership. Um, obviously, there's always exceptions to the rule, but I think there's something, um, you know, and it even might come from a good place because... You know, there's that pressure of, well, this is my flock, this is my church. I have to protect these people, and we're we're taught in Christianity, unfortunately, because I don't know that it's necessarily the message of Christianity, but we're taught in Western Christianity and evangelicalism that we have to know for sure. You know, right. and that doubt that doubt is basically a sin. I've actually was yes. told that um, from one of my church leaderships in the Assemblies of God. You know, that like. That if, that if you, which exactly, and there's, and the Bereans were like, also, um, if you look in the Bible, they were praised for, for their questioning and for their doubt and doubting, doubting Thomas was actually a good character in the Bible, not a right. bad one, but for some reason it doesn't fit into a church structure that's trying to like keep something up. It almost seems like, um, it's so fragile and they know that. And it's like, it just takes one person pulling at the wrong thread and then there's a church split, you know, and, then right. the whole, and so, and so they're trying to think it's almost like the greater good mentality. It's right. like, if I, if I shut this person down, then I can keep this other hundred or so happy and, 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 you know, paying their ties and keep the lights on and all that, yada, yada, yada. So, so it's, I don't, fault the pastors in a lot of those areas uh, it's, it's a system you know they were raised in the same system they're trying to keep this system going but that's obviously that's that's a major flaw especially when somebody just has a, an innocent question that yeah. ends up getting pushed out of the church because they you know didn't want to be deal with the answer didn't want to have to have a right. hard conversation right i'm sorry that i'm sorry that happened michelle yeah well you know i mean i was i was pushed into this process through a lot of anger um, where I know other people have approached it from a different perspective and, and I respect that. Um, but mine was through anger and, and a lot of rebelliousness, to be quite honest. Um, when I was told that, that I was asking the wrong questions, I kind of went the other way and said, I'm going to go ask every question I've ever wanted to ask now you it's on, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go look at everything I can find. Um, because if one thing doesn't make sense, I'm sure there's more. And of course there is you know, there's a, there's a whole plethora of, of topics that can be discussed and still not agreed upon. And it's unfortunate because I think it keeps people locked in a box of understanding of God. And I think God is supposed to be way bigger than we can ever understand. Yeah. It's unfortunate that we, that we think we have to agree upon them all is the thing exactly. that I don't understand. And, and like you said, we were raised in it to think that that is Christianity. And then when you start asking more questions and looking at other cultures, look at the Jewish culture or other other right. forms of Christianity, you realize, oh, it's okay to have these conversations. Hey, the Bible contradicts itself on purpose because it was written by other like people with different perspectives, and these perspectives right. were put it were put in there to conflict. So we would have to think like maybe we were created with this beautiful brain, you know, by a creator because he wants us to use it and imagine him in, a, in, in, in lots of different ways. I don't, the possibilities are endless, but I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. I well, and you, you made a comment a few minutes ago, I think is very pertinent to the conversation as, as it pertains to deconstruction. Um, we were taught that doubt is bad, that it's wrong and that certainty is equal to faith. 
And that's absolutely untrue. I mean, faith is, is exactly, faith is the opposite of certainty. I mean, you're operating in the dark, waiting for a light to turn on. It's not, it's not, I'm certain of this and I will not be moved. And I can remember singing those songs in church. I will not be moved. And I'm like, why wouldn't you be moved? I mean, shouldn't you be asking? I mean, Abraham questioned God. I mean, how many people in the Bible question God, you know, but yet we're, we've reached the epitome of understanding and totality of truth. And so this is where we pitch our tent and we're staying here. That's ridiculous. What's interesting because that, that sense of certainty, there's, it felt good. Well, sure. Absolutely. (laughs) It, it felt wonderful uh, growing up. You know, my faith was rock solid, um, and it was something I could trust. It was right. something that was reliable. And, you know, once we start realizing that it's not, that's when it's like, wait a second, uh, this, this, is, this is dangerous water. Yes, yeah. And I think that's the, the polarizing well, and I think, I think that there also is a point that in this journey that you reach that you want to go back. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you the number of times I'm like, I just need to go back to what I believe, shut all this down, find some peace again. But I can't. You can't unsee what you've seen. Right. You can't unknow what you know. So it's... And I, that's so true. Because uh, I have attempted to get involved in several... Uh, religious activities recently mm-hmm. and going to church has been one of the hardest things. Yeah, I can't do it. Like I can't, and I have a great pastor. Like I have a pastor that I, that is totally on the deconstruction path and I totally agree with, Yeah. but like just going to church in and of itself, it's like, I can't do it. Well, I have, I have this face that reacts. And so I mean, you could tell where I was at in deconstruction because when I was going to church, I used to sit in the front row. I mean, our pastor made comments from the stage when we weren't in our seats. It was like, oh, where where are the Collinses? They're not in their seats. And the more I started to question, the further back I went in the congregation because I didn't want to be up front where people could see me go, what the fuck? What? (laughs) You know? And and so after a while, it was just, you've taken yourself completely out of being able to let people see you when you're listening. I can't do it now. My husband goes to church, but I can't do it. Yeah, last time I was in a church service, I was on my phone the entire time. And it's just like, what am I doing here? Yeah, why am I here? I have four smaller children, and what am I teaching them at the same time? But something you just said, Seth, too, I mean, the feeling good to be certain about everything. Well, yeah, of course, when the doctrine is fear-based, when everything is based on fear, then yeah, you better be certain that you you're on the right side and the right team. And you got to think about how many different things in your life, even now stem from uh, like us learning that at a young age right? and and how, how wrong that is and how, and how it's, how important it is to be right. How important it is to, to be on the right team, you know, and not it's, and it's, and in doing that, you picking sides, you're drawing lines. It's all these different things that maybe that we're trying not to do at fade to gray, but it's mm-hmm. it's hard because that's how a lot of us, you know, in this community were raised. Even though we know that it's wrong, it's it felt good, and that's the thing. And I it's think comfortable. That, and that's and that's what the whole. That's I mean, we're all we're all American here, and so that's kind of the whole thing too. Like we have with terrorism, and even with the election season, all that different stuff. Like you'll hear so many different things that are trying to like get you to fear one way or the other to make a decision based on fear. And church, a lot of a lot of the churches we grew up in, use that same tactics. You know, whether it's the Muslims or it's burning pits of fire, you know, there's always something that we're supposed to fear um, as human beings. And if we do that, then we have a duty to react to that fear. And then they have us. Then then we're mindless soldiers. Then we're just that sheep, whatever you want to call it. And I think once we once we start stripping away that fear and confronting the fears, then that fear loses its power. And and then you're able to say. I'm okay with not knowing. I'm comfortable with not knowing because even when I knew, I could have been wrong. And so what's the point in knowing? I I remember, is this so bad? This is so bad, and I'm not going to take up any more time. But at a young age. No, this is good. At a young age, 
I, I had to know. I had that thing inside me that just had to know the answer, right? I just had to know it would drive me uh-huh. insane. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. That's just the way my brain worked. I have to know. Uh-huh. The, and But I got to the point where I realized I didn't have to know the truth. I just had to have an answer that checked all the boxes. If I, had, if, if I could find an answer and I couldn't find a flaw with that answer, then, it was, then I could move on to the next thing. Then I'm like, okay, well, I know that now. This is something I know now, and now I can know something else. And then you find out that my, my checklist of boxes was very small, and yet it checked like the first three, but was glaringly not going to work down the long haul. But it was always this, um, and I think too, Seth, me and you have this in common where it's instant gratification. And so with the, oh, yeah. with the wanting to be right and the comfortability of the certainty, there was an instant gratification in that where faith is something that we're, takes time because we're, we're operating out of something that we're not seeing, if that makes any sense. Anyway. Mm-hmm. It takes work. Yes. Sorry for that preach. I didn't mean to. <laughs> No, it's no, good. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> well, Michelle, I'm, I'm curious. Uh-huh. How long did it take to to go from the front row <laughs> out the door? You know, how long um, how long did that progression take? And it's kind of that's an interesting illustration, though, right? Like I was at the front row, and then I slowly started moving back and further and further and further until right. eventually you you were out. Uh, well. It took a while, and I'll say this, as, as I mentioned or briefly referenced, uh, it, it wasn't my choice to go. Um, mm. It just happened. I was told I was going. Um, but the process, uh, I started asking questions, and ironically, um, and I still go back to this because you got to be careful what you say to God, I think. Um, I had reached a point in life where I was, of course, you know, searching, meaning what am I supposed to be doing in life? You know, even though I had a career, I did everything. I was still searching. Like I still believed that there was this magic ministry that I was supposed to have or something, you know? And, and so I had, a, I had started going to some conferences and stuff. And I vividly remember being driving to a conference and telling God, you know, I'm ready for whatever you want me to do, whatever you want, you know, I'll do whatever you say. And then my life fell apart. And I thought, what the what just happened here? Um, but it, and so from that point to the time I was out the door, it was probably a year and a half. Um, that last six months were very, very uncomfortable. Um, I can imagine. Yeah, very uncomfortable. Um, and, and it was a state of shock the first Sunday I wasn't there. I literally sat in my living room. I, I couldn't stop moving my hands. I thought I'm supposed to be doing something and, I, and I'm not doing anything. And so it was a very long, so that's been a long process of trying to deprogram from that as well. So it, so. Well, we'll break that down a little bit. Like what did things look like for you after you left? Because there is a reorientation, a yes. recalculation of your life yeah. uh, routine alone. She started writing uh, after that. Well. <laughs> I didn't start writing then. I, I, well, I've been writing for years, but I didn't start writing a book then. Um, I did actually sit down and write. And, and I still have, uh, I don't know what you, it's not an article. It, it's, whatever. Yeah. I, I, I still have what I wrote that first Sunday when I, when I was done and, um, I read it not too long ago. It's actually a part of the book. Um, is it? Good. Uh, or at least a small part of it is, um, I sat down and, and I, I started writing about how I was feeling about a lot of things, but I found that that wasn't helpful to me because I needed to be act more active. I needed to be doing something. Um, so I started hiking, um, and I would go out on Sunday morning. So Sunday mornings became my, my hiking time. Um, I actually reconnected with uh, a lady that had been a part of my church as well and had left and we started hiking together. And, it, and then her mom joined us, her mom who wanted nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever joined us. And she was, you know, front row seat to me processing through my anger, um, questioning how God could do what he was doing and, and how I, I didn't understand how any of this was happening. And I remember vividly her telling me, she said, this time hiking with you has been the most amazing thing for me. She said, I've never wanted to talk about Christianity or God with anybody. She said, but the fact that you can stand here and tell me that you're angry with God and that you're angry with your belief system, she said, tells me that you're somebody I can trust. And I was blown away by that. I'm like, don't listen to me. I'm a friggin' mess right now. I don't, I don't even know that I like God. So, but it just developed and we hiked for gosh, a couple of years, every Sunday. That was our deal. 
15, 20 miles at a time. So, <laughs> Wow. You'll be surprised uh, how many people I've heard, you know, that's left the church that they say, you know, the woods is their church now. Yeah. Yeah. And that they can somehow connect to God. They learned how to only find God in buildings in a certain formulaic yes. way and method. And, and once they've kind of opened up that possibility. It's like, wow, nature is so much of a better church to experience like the glory of God in. But I, mean, I think, but I think both are maybe equally as important. I guess it depends. You know, I think they're, you know, yeah. that's all. Um, but where are you now then? Uh, uh, I'm at, I'm at a, I, I'm able to look at it now and go, okay, I can let that go. Um, I, I don't know that you ever get done deconstructing. I know that's probably bad news for people, but I just don't believe we ever do. I think once you start, that's a lifelong thing that you're never going to view anything you think or feel the same way. Again, you're going to constantly be analyzing it to some degree. Um, how would you classify? I mean, would you call yourself a Christian then? Or would you, I mean, how would, if someone was asking you about your faith at this point, like, how would you describe it? Um, well, let me preface that by saying, or preface my answer by saying, I, I think you have to define what kind of deconstruction you're talking about. And, and what I mean by that is we all use this very big blanket term. And what I have found in my, through my personal experience and through interacting with other people who are going through this process, um, there are people that are deconstructing just one or two tenets of what they believe. Um, and by the way, let me also say that all of these are valid. I'm not discounting any of them. But so they're, they're deconstructing, oh, I don't know if I believe in hell anymore or the end times or, or, you know, they've picked one or two things that they're now saying, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Then there's people that are deconstructing God. They're trying to get to whether God is a good guy or not, you know. And then, then there's another level where you go where now you've, you've, you've moved beyond deconstructing God and now you're deconstructing your entire life and yourself. And it, so there's somewhere along that spectrum is where everybody falls. And so what I have found is that I have, I have, I've done that whole thing. Um, so at, if I call myself a Christian now, as it pertains to what the definition looks like for American Christianity, no, I don't. Um, simply because, and I vacillated with that. Like I, I vacillated from, no, we need to take that term back and make it mean what it's supposed to mean to, uh, screw it, I give up. Um, and now I found that I'm at peace with whatever people decide they want to call me. I don't like labels anyway. Um, I believe in Jesus. That's what most people that I've spoken to that like are still, you know, consider themselves Christian. And I try to basically explain the same thing you just did in my, in maybe my own terms, but that's, they just want to know, they just want to know well, what are you doing with Jesus? You know, right. <laughs> like, you right. know, that's like, right. Like that's, that's the biggest thing. It's like, as long as you still believe in Jesus, then you're okay. <laughs> well, like, but then again, even that has to be deconstructed because what right. Jesus are we talking about? Whose definition? Right. Whose yeah, understanding? Because the reality is, and, and again, as I said, there's a, the, that different spectrum of, of deconstruction, but there's Mine's a point where you Jesus, question God. <laughs> Little baby Jesus. <laughs> Golden dappas. <laughs> no, but I, I had to ask myself, I'm like, what if Jesus isn't deity? What if he isn't God? Does the man, historical man, Jesus, I believe he existed, was his life worthy of emulation? Well, yes, I believe mm -hmm. that it was. Mm -hmm. So at the very ground level, I can say, I need to live my life like Jesus lived his life um, because it's it's worth that. Um, do I believe that, that Jesus was the son of God? Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. Uh, again, but you're still asking somebody who's deconstructing God <laughs> whether there's an existence of God or not, whether they believe this man is God. So again, it's it's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, that whole story that yeah, I'm like let's not get into that because <laughs> because once you start de deconstructing and you're deconstructing like the virgin birth, you know, story right. and right. realizing that it's you know, it's not even an original story. So, exactly. <laughs> But, but, you weren't taught that in Sunday school. <laughs> right, right. But No, the, we were not. At no. the same time, I'm with you. I think it's, at some point for me, it became, I want to believe this. You know, like, yes. it, it, is, is it a word, is the life of Jesus, Jesus something that's worthy to 
be emulated or followed or you know, respected. And right. then, yeah, I think we're really on a lot of the same pages with with things. It's interesting talking with you. It's been it's really been it's, a pleasure. It's um, I think it's I, I want I I'm I'm in agreement with you when you say you want to believe. I want to believe, yeah. and and I feel like that's kind of where I'm at per, uh, currently in this situation or in this process is I have found myself wanting very much to believe in God again and to believe, mm-hmm. you know, that there's a loving deity that is interested in me personally. I want to believe that. I don't always believe that on any given day, you know, and, and I catch myself every now and then starting to pray. And then I think, well, is this worth my time? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, so I vacillate on, on all those things that I used to do so easily. I, I vacillate. Do we, do we deconstruct in order to reconstruct? You, perhaps maybe the focus should be different. Like if we started focusing on reconstructing our faith in a way that actually suits us and is actually not traumatizing, yeah. um, you know, is that possible? I, I think it is. But again, this is where I caution when I have these discussions with people. Um, one, of the, one of the things that will make me angrier than anything is somebody telling me I'm deconstructing incorrectly. Um, that, that will get, that will get you on my, on a list that we, (laughs) um, no, because I really have a hard time with that. People, uh, you know, oh, they don't like the term deconstruction or you're not doing it correctly or anything. Uh, this is where I, I got very interested in, in the idea that this process was very much a grieving process because you can't tell anybody they're grieving incorrectly. It's subjective to that Mm -hmm. person. And so is this process. Each one of us is going to do this differently based on our background, our beliefs, our experiences, our personality. All of these things matter. So when you're saying, should we reconstruct? Yes. But again, what does that look like? Because reconstruction is going to look different for each person too. And the timeline is going to be completely different for each person as well. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be the same thing that it was before. Never. You know, that the whole idea of like going back, right? Right. When we were talking about certainty Mm -hmm. and how things are not certain and how that was so comfortable, you know, we have this desire to go back to that. and I don't want to reconstruct to that. Right. So but I love the tie that you made with grief because, you know, as we know with grief, there are stages. Yes. Um, everyone goes through those stages at a different, uh, on a different timeline. Exactly. Um, you could be still in the, you know, still in the midst of grieving five years later and someone else could be through it in six months. It, it really does vary. So let's talk a little bit about that. Well, again, and you've brought up a a brilliant point because that's my contention all along is is this is a grieving process and we may all be grieving something different. Um, We may be grieving those relationships that we've lost. We may be grieving God. Um, For myself, I reached a point where I was grieving myself. Like I felt like I had wasted a lot of time and potential on something that I now didn't see as important anymore. Um, So that that is something that we all have to grieve with. Um, And yes, there's those five, you know, magic phases of grief. And, and they are applicable to this process. Each one of them is, but they're not linear. You know, even grieving is not linear. You don't go, oh, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in depression or now I'm angry. And you don't go through this linear process. You're, you're thrown in all over the place. And any one of those uh, sections of grief can show up at any given time. And, and I'm not somebody that likes the word trigger, but it, for lack of a better word, any trigger can bring up one of those phases in a grief process. So for the most part, I've moved past anger in this whole process, but every now and then there's something that happens and I'm pissed off all over again, like really angry all over again. And I have to kind of work through that again. Um, I also think that what you said about a new normal or not being able to go back is applicable. We have this idea that once we reach acceptance, that the sun comes out, the birds start singing and, and life is happy again. That's not reality. Acceptance means that you've now decided that the new reality is going to be what you have to deal with. And so how does that look in deconstruction? Well, I don't know. And I think that's why I'm having a hard time with the last part of my book, because that's what I got to write on. And I'm like, how do you write on something you don't know if you've got there yet? You know, because um, I don't want to be hypocritical and tell them this is how you handle it. I don't know how what I'm doing with it. So um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a grief cycle. It's, it's all of those emotions. 
I like how you said it's not linear and because mm-hmm. it reminds me, Seth, when you asked the question originally, is it okay? I forget exactly how you asked it about reconstruction or when do you reconstruct? At what point, you know, do you stop? Do we deconstruct to reconstruct? Exactly. And I, and I think it's, it's one of those things that's not even linear. I think it has to be a fluid thing. There's always going to be deconstruction and reconstruction at the same time. And, and like you guys were comparing it to the, the grief cycle, I think, or a grief process, I think that was pretty awesome because I don't think I've really looked at it quite that way before. But it really is a matter, there is no timeline. There is no set time that says, okay, well, I've been questioning and dealing with this for, for this long, so now I need to move on. It's time. It's like, it's no, it's when you're ready, you'll know you're ready. You know, if you're at the stage where you want to believe, then then you you want to believe, you know, I mean, there might be a time again, where it's like, I know that I know, but I'm, that doesn't do me any good right now. The, the more brutal honesty of, I don't know, but this is what I want to believe is so much more satisfying at this point. So I don't know. So I think, I think there is definitely like a fluid thing of like always deconstructing and, and learning something new and being willing to I think that's the biggest thing is just staying teachable in in all aspects of life is is huge and a lot easier said than done oh absolutely yeah I think so too I I th- but I think that we have made that process seem as though it's it has a negative connotation somehow but yet it really doesn't I I think that honestly, I want to be learning until I die. And as a matter of fact, I've never been able to square the idea of heaven as sitting around worshiping God all the time as something that seemed applicable to me. I thought, how boring, Jesus, I I need to be doing more than that. And so what if eternity, what if eternity with God is being able to learn everything you've ever wanted to learn? You know, just a continual state of learning. To me, that sounds like, like something I can be on, on board with. Um, But who knows, you know, I, I don't know, but I think, I think that going through this process is incredibly beneficial as, as painful as it has been. I also believe it's incredibly beneficial and looking back, knowing what I know now, all the junk that I've gone through with it. If I had, if I, if somebody had given me a choice at the beginning, do you want to go through this? I think now I would say yes. Maybe earlier on, I would have said hell no, but now I would say yes. Yes. Even if it's going to hurt, even if it's going to be difficult to get to the other side. Yes, I would. Well, you're stronger. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I I think that we become stronger as we go through it and more resilient for when other things come down the line in the future. I am curious though, is just when we talk about grief, you know, um, grief is a hard thing and to work through it, there's different things for different people. There's not necessarily, this is what you do to move through the loss of a loved one. Um, every everyone is different, and so I'm curious when when talking about grieving deconstruction, what have been the the coping strategies, the coping mechanisms that you've used to kind of move through it when things got hard and things were uncertain. I think it depends on where you're at in that process um, because you cope differently, and you cope differently at different levels of understanding as well. You know, when you're first starting this and something hits you, you know, you deal with it differently than you do now. Um, One of the things that I truly, truly struggled with, especially in the beginning, um, was almost a PTSD effect Um, over over the subject of hell, to be quite honest. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, hell had been in my understanding from from childhood. As a matter of fact, I lived my entire life. My entire relationship with God was based on the fear of not going to that. I didn't want to go to hell. Um, and I, and to be honest with you, and, I, and this is maybe more information than anybody needs. I didn't believe God even loved me. I believed that we had a contract because I accepted Christ and he had no choice. Um, oh, wow. yeah, I, yeah. And I came from a, ba- and I still struggle with self-image and things like that. And so when you come from a background like that, you know, you're, you're delved into this arena of an angry God that you have to appease for somebody to tell you there's not hell is, is a bright shining light. Like, Oh wow. Okay. Maybe God is more loving than I think. But then those moments happen where you go, well, you were wrong before. What if you're wrong now? 
and now you're going to go to hell because you're wrong. And so I would literally have panic attacks. Like I can't breathe. My heart would pound. I would sweat. I, I thought I was going to die and I would have to get up and I would walk. I would go outside and walk and just like try and take deep breaths. Like, okay, this is okay. You're okay. You know, if God loves you, then he's going to show you the truth. And I would have to literally talk myself out of those panic attacks. Um, and they became less and less every now and then those thoughts creep back in. And I, I experienced that momentary panic, but it's a lot less. Um, but I try to be as vocal as I can, um, mm -hmm. about where, what I'm feeling or thinking, even if it's really ugly, angry stuff, because I really feel like we have to get that out of us. Um, and that's the most, the easiest coping mechanism. I think, I think we've all seen the stereotypical grieving, you know, the, let me, uh, maybe, a, you know, a woman grieving her husband dying or whatever. And, she's just trying to be soft-spoken and sweet about it. Well, I've never been soft-spoken and sweet in my entire life. So I can't pull that off. So to me, just letting all of that, and maybe it's in my living room by myself because that's probably where it should be. <laughs> so most people are not affected by it. But every now and then, I mean, I've, I've been sitting in restaurants and had somebody walk up to me and said, Michelle, um, I haven't seen you in forever. Can I talk to you? They sit down and they start telling me that they're going through this process and how they've been treated and the anger's right there. And I feel it come up and I have to like temper that in public, you know, but I'll catch myself wanting to punch something again. <laughs> and, okay. Right. Let's take a deep breath. Let's calmly handle this, you know, but it's those little things like that. And so it is because of those kind of triggers that your reaction may be different in any given moment. You know, if I'm sitting calmly and thinking about it, I can talk myself through it. If something like that happens, it's probably a bigger reaction. But at least if I'm honest about those emotions and that reaction, then I feel like that's the best coping mechanism I can that I can use. Um, right. Yeah, self-awareness. Yeah. And not putting a mask over it or pretending it's not there or pretending right. it's something else, owning it for what it is. Yes. You know? Yeah. Self-awareness is huge, I guess, in any sort of reconstruction or deconstruction process because if not, we're constantly, things are always just happening to us, you know. Also, along the lines of self-awareness, it's it's kind of like the living in the moment more because a lot of times with the trauma of the deconstruction, you're always like comparing our experiences now to things in the past or like wanting to, and, that, and, that's, where, and that's where it gets like, almost like sad where you're grieving the loss of something yeah. in your life, something huge, like a loss of like who you were and you know, like everything you believed at one point to be true. So I think to let myself and others off the hook who listen to this, if you're thinking about it already, if you're having these thoughts and these questions, I mean, it, it's going to happen. It's just one of those things. It's, there's no telling how long it's going to happen in your life. And I think I'm not a counselor at all. I don't have any degrees. I'm, I'm way undereducated in this conversation, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that denial is one of those stages of grief. Maybe yeah. I don't know. Uh -huh. And it's uh -huh. like see, a lot of times, maybe that's people don't ever leave that stage. Maybe in Christianity, yeah. it's like, sometimes it's like, because they are confronted with certain questions and it's, so you're already at that point, things are deconstructing and it's like, they just keep slack. It's almost, if you look at it, because they're words of you know construction and me being in the field of construction it's like if you have something wrong with your foundation and you're just constantly constantly just you know every year just fixing the same spot in there so it's like and denying the fact that like maybe you should dig up the, on the outside of the house and and maybe you yeah. know re redo your entire foundation so you're not in your basement and dumping <laughs> money and wasting resources and all that other other shit so yeah. And and then one day your house falls in because you never took care of the foundation. So anyway, yeah. it's a very applicable. It's a very applicable example. Yeah, it's gonna happen, and that's the thing. Is it so? There is um, enjoy the ride. I guess is the biggest <laughs> thing. Like I can say, like you said, like you wouldn't change a thing. You mentioned it, and I I, I wouldn't either. Um, I think that's the thing I would change the most is not like because even. In the height of my evangelicalism, working for uh, Assemblies of God, I had great memories and great friends. And there for a while, I, you know, it was my issue, but maybe I held things against people. But I'm like, I'm over it all. And I'm thankful that I got to do it and, and just living in what I have now and, and what life has given you now. So, 
It's the best we can do. Sometimes. You know, I, deconstruction. I'll, for, for me, I've, deconstruction hasn't been a choice. No. Or an option. It's not for anybody. <laughs> um, well, I, it's almost as if, for me, as, as someone who's struggled with, I even hate saying struggle, but at when, if I go back 10 years and I find myself back in the church and wanting to live that life and wanting to adhere to these values and then realizing that I am gay, it, it rocked my world. And really, the only way that I could the only way that I could learn to be okay in my own skin was to deconstruct. Yeah. It was the, it like, there was not an option. I had to, it was either deconstruct or suicide is not far yeah. down the line. So, right. you know, I, we talk about it not being a choice, but I'm just, as people go through it, I understand that this is hard. I understand that this is scary but I want to just let you know that it's vital that we do it because in the end, the, the other side is better. God is better than what we think. Yeah, I agree. That's my hope. Yeah. My hope <laughs> as well. And, and again, that's all we have is that that hope we don't really know. I, I will say this though. If, if he's not, he's not worthy of worship. He's just not. And, and so he has to be better than the traditional God that we've been raised with. Um, if he leaves anybody out, if he leaves anybody out, then he's not the savior of mankind. He's just not. And so we have to really evaluate some of those terms and decide, you know, does this make sense for who God is? Or have we created God in a box that makes us feel comfortable? And um, I can't do I that anymore. That. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that is something that I, I fear. I think we should. I think that's a healthy thing, like to be questioning that. Is this my idea of God or is this God? I don't need a God I can right. understand, to be honest. I mean, I don't need a God that's like me because good Lord, nobody needs that. Um, so I just think that we have to be honest and say God is probably bigger and better than we can ever imagine. And he should be. It's, mm -hmm. just, it's just the way it should be. Right. And that there's in viewing it that way, there's a lot of hope. Yes. There's a lot of fear if you hold yeah. to certainty. There's yes. a lot of, there's a lot of, that's the worst thing you could possibly hear from a conservative uh, perspective in which you're trying to control everything. But if you step back and as you start to deconstruct, you're able to look around and, 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 and say that I don't have to know everything and that God is in fact bigger than me and we can't know all of the answers and the book we're using is 2,000 years old, written by multiple people with multiple opinions that do contradict one another. Yeah. What do we do with that? Um, so being able to step back from that. I, we talked about this with on another podcast just recently, but something that was brought up was how we actually experience God. And that for the, for the good majority of my, of my faith trajectory, the only way to experience God, the only way to really hear from God was the Bible. Right. And I'm curious that as you've deconstructed and as you've started to look at God being bigger, right? Being bigger than these certainties. Um, have you experienced God in other ways? Uh, well, we talked a little bit ago, um, experiencing God through nature, of course. Um, I really... I have a, a bench that's about three or four miles away up on a big hill. So it takes me a lot of exertion to get up there, but I sit up there and I love, I love the silence and just the wind blowing. And to me, that feels peaceful. That feels like God. And, and so that, that's been one way. Um, and, it, and I think I mentioned this when we first started chatting earlier, there's that internal knowing as well. Sometimes th things just settle and you know, this is the right thing. Uh, and if, of course, in my tradition, my Christian tradition, that was always God, you know, um, and, and maybe it is. Um, but, but I've learned to trust it, whether it's myself or God, I've learned to trust it because it's, it's almost always correct. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I've experienced him that way. I've experienced, I'm also somebody that's had open visions. I've had all these, I'm, I had a very, still am very emp uh, empathic and prophetic. Uh, I still believe in all of that because I believe humanity is connected. So I believe that we do have insight into one another. Um, I find God in all of those things. I don't know that I just define it the same way anymore. Um, 
like I used to believe that you could only have prophetic tendencies if you were a Christian. I don't believe that anymore. I believe we all have that ability. We just don't tap into it. Um, or if we've tapped into it from a secular viewpoint, we've demonized it and that's not right either. So anyway, that's another whole subject matter. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm listening to you talk, Michelle, and I'm like, I'm wanting to ask you questions that would completely de derail the conversation and stuff. And so I think for now we should uh, go ahead and wrap it up. And I think, but there's, there's more things we can talk about later and maybe even like, continue a little bit off air maybe for some bonus content or something mm -hmm. like that too like I, I have a couple of questions i sure. might want to ask you about dmt <laughs> so you're writing a book where can people find you where can people look um, you up? well i'm on facebook that's my main outlet i'm i'm very introverted personality so i don't really have a face-to-face -face community that's been another hard part in all of this um but i'm on facebook um i'm on instagram but instagram is usually pretty much just all my bodybuilding stuff so most people are not interested in that. Um, I, the, the book will be coming out. I hope sometime this year, I'm trying to finish it up and get it to the publisher. I also have a podcast, um, that's being re-released. So that should be coming here really soon. Um, that's called, um, uh, the Canon content. Oh my gosh. I can't, I just forgot the name of my own podcast. How bad <laughs> is it? A, what's it about? What's it, what do you talk about on your podcast? Well, we're re-releasing it. It's uh, I'm a reader. I'm an avid reader. And so the podcast was brought to me by a publisher who said, Hey, we want you to do a podcast on, on books. Um, and so it sounds very NPR and all of that, but it's basically, um, the idea of reading whatever we're going to read and bridging the sacred and secular divide, uh, book by book basically. And so it's, it was set up as a two person podcast. It's now just me, but I have guest people come on and they're not allowed to talk about their own books. They're allowed to only talk about books that have inspired them and helped them see God in everything. So hmm, that's very interesting. Um, we'll definitely so, talk, yeah, we're we'll definitely talk to more here in a second. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah. Um, so that's coming up. And as I said, the book hopefully will be coming out. So there's not a whole lot of places you can find me, but I'm always on Facebook. So well, thank you so much for coming on. This oh, thank you. This was a great conversation. Yeah, and, I had fun. Uh, have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to Fade to Gray Podcast. This episode was brought to you by our patrons. If you want to figure out how to support us, go to patreon.com backslash fade to gray podcast and join the group that helps support our podcast. To stay up to date, Fade to Gray podcast is part of the Fade to Gray network. If you'd like to know more, find us online at fadetograypodcast.com. There you'll be able to find out about other podcasts within our network. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Fade to Gray podcast and on Twitter at Fade to Gray pod. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Until next time, guys. Peace.